Thank you, Mike. Our church has been exceedingly blessed with many people who are very talented in music and specifically gifted in guitar and stringed in instruments such as that one. We are hoping in the weeks to come and, and hopefully for a long period after that to have an opportunity for those of you that play an instrument, play guitar. I'm being waved at. Is it on? I'm on. It's on. Are we good? You can hear me. <laughs> I give Sean Caudell my mic for one Sunday and he breaks it. That's what it sounds like to me. Anyways, what I was, I'm going to be staying put today. I'm okay now? Okay. Uh, uh, anyways, we are going to create an opportunity for those of you that play guitar or some stringed instrument like guitar, um, a chance to gather and to work on music together and hopefully be able to move that music into our worship services like what we heard from Mike today and also in the, our time of worship. Um, if you would like to be a part of that, they're not, we don't have all the details sorted out, but I'm going to put Josh Thomas as kind of the point man on that. Wave your hand, Josh. Um, if you'd be interested or you play an instrument and you'd like to be a part of that for any any level of commitment, um, talk to Josh, and we're going to work out a time where as many people can get together and to, to play music together and to worship and then to help our church worship together in the, uh, in the weeks to come and, and hopefully for a long time into the future. So we would encourage you to be a part of that. As we get into our study today, we are going to take a break yet again um, from the book of Ezekiel. We are about to see a major shift in kind of the tone and the, the speech in Ezekiel. And so we're going to take a, just a little bit of a breather, if you will, and to look at some stuff. And today we're going to specifically look at a passage that God laid on my heart when I was traveling, when I was in Brazil and during my time there. So I'd like you to turn with me to the prophet Isaiah. Now, the prophet Isaiah is a major prophet. Some might say he is the major prophet. Uh, many people say that the prophet Isaiah was, that, that his book is the gospel of the Old Testament. If you're opening up your Bible and you open it up to the dead center, you're probably going to find yourself in something like Psalms, uh, maybe Proverbs, something like that. You want to begin to move towards the back of your Bible, but it will be the first book of the Bible after you have Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. You'll find Isaiah, who is the majorist of the major prophets because he wrote the most. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 44, if you do not have a bulletin in front of you. In Isaiah chapter 44, and we're going to be beginning in verse 9. So Isaiah 44, starting in verse 9, and if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now the word of God says this, Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves were mere men. Let them all assemble together and let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and he becomes weary. Another shapes wood. 
He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and and outlines it with a compass. He makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and he warms himself and he also makes a fire to bake bread and he also makes a god and he worships it and he makes it a graven image and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat that he roasts and a roast is in, is, and he is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god. His graven image. He falls down before it and worships it. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they understand. For he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their, and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and I eat it. And then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He, fe- he feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Please be seated. It's an interesting passage that we read here from Isaiah as he begins to, uh, God begins to mock the idolatry of the nation of Israel during this time. We are in a season in the nation of Israel that is actually before Ezekiel. And this is before we see Jerusalem fall, but we are at a point where within the nation of Israel, they have become so idolatrous and have walked so far away from God that, that their idolatry is just out there for everyone to see and, and experience. As I was traveling, as we made our way to Brazil and we had all of our flights and we did all of that stuff, we landed the first night and, and our missionary, Stan, um, picked us up from the airport and took us straight to our Airbnb to get some rest. And as we were driving there, he said, in the morning, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to take you to the public market. And Yale and I both heard that and we thought, okay, cool, we're, we're staying in an Airbnb, they're not providing breakfast and, and we got to have something to eat. And so he's going to take us in the morning to the market so that we can buy some, some snacks and some things for breakfast and that type of stuff. And so we didn't really question it. We didn't really say anything. We're like, okay, great. Sounds good. And so we get taken to our room and we get in and, and we get all settled. And, and as we get there, Yale starts working on, on the videos that, that you guys can see on our Facebook page. And we'll hopefully be able to show those for you. If you don't have Facebook, we're going to take some time later, um, very soon, but later in, in the month, and, uh, and play those videos for you and just help you get a feel for what happened in Brazil. But while Yale is doing that, I begin to look through a folder that Stan has given us that's explaining what we're going to do that week. It's got kind of our itinerary and, and just some information about the area. And as I open up that folder and begin looking through that stuff, I come to a realization the public market that we are going to is not because we want to get some, some uh, crackers and cheese and chips and, and Brazilian candy. 
On the contrary, this Brazilian market is one of the, is the oldest market in the city and probably one of the older markets in the nation of Brazil. And it has been there and been used as a market since back before supermarkets ever existed. And people would quite literally bring in their boats and bring them into the lagoon and bring them all the way to Porto Alegre. And as they docked in at Porto Alegre, they would carry all of the wares and all of the things off the boat and take them just a very short distance to the public market. And people would do all of their commerce, their buying and selling and trading in this market. And as, as the years had gone by, it had gone from being an open air market where just people gathered. <coughs> Excuse me, I haven't had to talk this much in a while. Um, and then it became basically turned into the grocery store and had booths. And as you walked into the market, there were butcher shops and there were places selling cheese. There were places selling uh, tea that is very popular down there. Um, and really just about anything you could think of, as well as restaurants along the outside where you could buy already cooked and prepared food. Now, the reason why we were, go why we were going there was not for the food or the trinkets or, or the tea. On the contrary, one interesting thing about this market was is it, who had built it. And just like we kind of see some of this in the United States today, the people who had built the public market were, were African slaves that had been brought over across the, the ocean and they had been put to the task of building this. And as those African slaves came in and they began to build it, they began to include their culture and their kind of heritage into it until we saw this blending and this mixing of the faith of, say, the Roman Catholic Portuguese and this faith, this belief system that came from the Yorobi people. And so as they built this thing, they included something in it, in the marketplace that you might not see the next time you go to Kroger. And in the very center of the marketplace, there was a mosaic. And as you looked at the mosaic, you would, you would come to, and there was a kind of a crossroad. The whole market kind of made a big plus sign with a circle around it. And as you'd go to the center of that plus sign, you would see this mosaic. And it, it kind of resembled a, a compass uh, that you might see, or the, the star compass that you would see on a map. And in kind of the north and the south and the east and the west and the northeast and the southeast and all those things, they had keys that they had made using this mosaic stuff, shiny keys. And, what, and, and what's interesting is Stan began to notice this because he does photography and he was kind of connecting with photographers throughout the, the city of Porto Alegre. And he started to notice specifically all of the pictures of this particular market. People were really noticing and emphasizing this mosaic in the center. And so finally he asked somebody, he goes, what's the big deal about that mosaic in the center? Why is there so many pictures of it? Why does it matter? And they said, oh, that's the throne of Bara." Excuse me? What does that mean? And when this market had been built and the people had brought their, their pagan faith over from Africa, they had a God. And that God, and the way it had been interpreted and, and named as it made its way to southern Brazil, was Bara. It has many other names. And Bara was a god of balance, a god of crossroads, a god of, of decisions. And, and really, he was considered the trickster god, the god who caused trouble, who created, they said created balance, but what they meant by that is there was a god that tended to be good, and he was the one that balanced out the good. 
And so we were going to see how there were people in southern Brazil who were still worshiping and still practicing this worship of this pagan god among a, I know I'm shocked too, among a pantheon of gods. And he wanted us to see it and to be aware of it. And so I read that and I turned to Yale and I said, oh, this, this isn't, we're not going for chips and salsa. Huh? We're not going for olives and Italian seasoning. Um, if you could travel with, with uh, Philip, you'll understand how bougie he is. Um, we're going because this has some significance to what the spiritual state of this city is. And so we get up the next morning and we drive in and we park the car and we go in to the market and we almost go straight for that thing. And, and you walk into the market. I want to give you a picture of what this like. You walk into the building and it's an old building. And as you walk into that part where the market is, the first thing you'll notice is the first shop to the left, no matter which side you come in as you're going to the center, is what we would call today a kind of a, a, a spiritist shop or a voodoo shop. And that shop is lined with statues and things. And down there they have boats that represent the god of the goddess of the sea. And all sorts of things are throughout that shop that are used for religious rituals and, and burning incense and all those type of things that they might have for their home pagan worship. And the reason it's there is because they believe that that's one of the most powerful spiritual locations within the market is the first one on the left. And as you walk past those and you might get that twinge of discomfort as you realize there are all these statues and all of these these things that are used for for worship and, and incense and offering and all of these things. And then you begin to go on and then you find this mosaic and it's in the center. And as we're kind of watching it and, 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 and our missionary is explaining us what it is, then suddenly this little old lady walks up. And she walks up to the mosaic and she looks at all of the different directions that the, the arrows are going and all the different keys that it's pointed to. And she bends down and she begins to place a piece of candy on every arrow. And I stood in shock and silence. And eventually she had made her way around the whole thing and had placed eight pieces of candy on every arrow. And then she got up and she looked at it and then she went on her way. And suddenly I realized this is, this is not just what I'm looking at, this mosaic. This is not just artwork. This is not just something celebrating a cultural significance and a part of the history of Brazil, even if it is a dark part of the history of Brazil. That woman had gone to that place today and she had gone there prepared with, with treats and offerings to a God that she very much so believed in in hopes that that God would show her favor, that would not short circuit her plans, that he would open doors for her in her life or in her family so that things might get better. Her hope and her faith was that eight pieces of chocolate might change the course of her life or the life of someone else. In our culture and in our world, we often think of idolatry as something that existed in the past and has no real impact on us today. But I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, we don't have to travel very far to realize that it's here. That idolatry still exists today. And I think if we opened our eyes, we might even see that we don't have to travel halfway across the world to see that people are placing their faith in things that are not God. 
and placing the hope of their future in rituals and behaviors that ultimately lead to nothing. When I was in Brazil and as I watched this woman do it and many others after her, as they left a piece of candy, as they stopped to perform some sort of gesture or rite, whatever they were doing to give some sort of respect, observance, or just to stay on the good side of this false god, this demonic being that they call Bara, it became abundantly clear that their beliefs were shaping and coloring the way they saw the world. And that their hope was in a finicky God that liked to play tricks on them as much as anything else. They were living in fear that they would say the wrong thing, that they would do the wrong thing, that they would not show the right respect, and for that, calamity would come upon their home. As we look at the prophet Isaiah, we see the futility of this lifestyle. And that behind what this woman did is a truth about a God who loves her and wants to set her free from this fear. Let's look at the text today, and as we do so, as we really get into what the text actually says, I want us to think about a couple of things. As one, I want us to think about the idolatry that exists out there in the world and the need for the gospel. But uh, the other thing I want you to do is I want you to internalize it a little bit. See, there's a, a very famous theologian named Calvin, and he once said that we all have idol factories in our hearts. And it takes very little for us to begin to begin, build up idols and, and practices in our own hearts that, that shift our desire and our love and our faith in God away from God into something else. And I want us to think about that and pray about that and see the truth of what Isaiah and what God says through Isaiah in this passage and how this might apply to the things in our life that seem to be taking an idolatrous role. As we dive into the text, the first thing that God wants to point out about idolatry and about idol worship is that these objects of worship are made by human hands. The focus of the passage begins with two professions. One, a worker of metal, and the other one, a carpenter. Both are tasked with the making of an idol. The smith makes this idol out of metal in whatever way and fashion he is able, and the carpenter makes his idol out of wood. Both are required to work in order to bring the idol into existence. If we think about it for just a moment, there is no idol, no God, and no object of worship unless it is brought into being. Before it is brought into being, it is just a lump of metal. It is just a block of wood. But in order for there to be a God, in order for there to be an idol, in order there to be something to worship, it has to come into existence. The mosaic that I saw in, in Brazil, the pictures that would have been attached to it, the statues that we saw throughout and even within the voodoo shop, every single one of them had to be made. Now, obviously Aaron, who knew that in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus and made and fashioned this golden calf, when asked, what is this? He said, hey man, we just threw stuff in the fire and it popped out. Wasn't true though. He lied about it. 
for that throne and that, that mosaic uh, picture to be put, someone had to sit there and choose every stone and put it in there and grout it and polish it and, and put every piece in there. He had to go out and find those rocks. And whether he purchased it from someone at a quarry or someone brought it to him, whoever the artist was, it would not have been there unless a man put it there. We think about those who, who worship these statues in, in whatever context and, and they, they burn their incense and make their offerings to some idol or some statue or some God represented in it. We have to remember every single one of those was made, if not by just some man or by some factory, by a person who has no idea what it is. I cannot help but kind of laugh even in, in, in some of our, our, our divergent Christian faiths. And we have ones that, that will bow down and pray and worship and leave offerings towards pictures of, of this saint or that saint. Knowing full well some person in China made it, had no idea what it was. It's kind of comical. And so this God... This statue, this, this throne and this mosaic that we see in the middle of, of this marketplace is only there because a man or woman, doesn't matter, it's not what I mean, took the time and the effort to put it there. They sweat over it. They bled over it. They thought about every single piece. And as they did so, they got hot. They got thirsty. They got tired. And, and, and there was no assistance from the God whatsoever in its creation because the God was dependent on the man to create it. But this is not so with the one true God. The one true God does not need man to exist. He does not need them to build something for him, to create a space for him, to create an image by which he will be worshipped. God does not need man. In fact, the Lord even says himself, I am who I am. And he said to Israel, and thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. The worship of Yahweh, the one true God, is the worship of he who is. Not because a person thought him up, not because a craftsman brought, craftsman brought him into existence, but because he is. Because he exists. In fact, before anything existed, God existed. Before time was ever struck, before a single planet spun, before a single star shined, God is. And he does not need our mosaics. He does not need our statues. He does not need even the building we sit in for him to exist and to be worshipped. Jesus himself said when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman that there will come a day where neither will you worship me in the temple nor on the mountain, but you will worship me in spirit and truth. We have people in this world who are worshiping a God that they made and forsaking the God who made them. And the scary thing is, is we might have people in this room doing the very same thing. Not only are these objects of worship made by human hands, but they're made by earthly things. As we looked out on 
the mosaic, as we think about what was in these, these cult shops, most of the things in there, what are they made of? Rock, metal, wood, plastic, which I guess technically comes from oil. These are all things that were already here. They were already on the planet. They already existed and, and they had to already be here for, for a God to be made out of them. As we begin, we go into the text, we're reminded in the passage that, that the idols that are being made are made out of two things. One is made out of metal. It could be gold, it could be silver, it could be bronze, it could have just been iron. The other one is made out of wood. If we think about how those processes work, it's kind of, again, comical that we would fall down and worship it. I don't know if you've ever seen how they pull the, the iron ore, the things out of, out of for the, or the, the gold out of things or the silver out of things, but they, they make a giant kiln, a, a, just a super hot chimney thing, and they get it as hot as you could possibly imagine. And then what they do is they just start throwing the pieces that have the ore in it into the fire. And as it gets hotter and hotter and hotter, the, the dirt and the stone and all of the other things begin to fall apart and burn up and melt away. And the, the metal begins to liquefy and it liquefies. It begins to come together into a larger piece. And then when all is said and done, they, they take that, that uh, chimney and they let it cool down completely and they open it up and they reach in there and they begin to pull out all the ash and the soot and the, the whatever. And then eventually they find that huge nugget of whatever metal it is, whether it be gold or silver or just iron ore. And it's through that, then they begin the process of turning it into something. Imagine for just a moment, someone falling down to worship the remnants of a bunch of pile of rocks. And yet that's what they're doing. But our passage, it actually chooses to focus in on the wood, which I think makes a lot of sense because he didn't have to explain all that weird metal stuff. And it says that, they, that the carpenter uses a tree. It even kind of talks about going to the forest and maybe even intentionally trying to grow trees so that it knew it had the lumber that it needed to apply. The carpenter had the lumber that it needed to apply his trade. It says it goes in and he collects the wood, he chops down the tree, and he brings it in to do what he needs to do. Both men need what the earth provides in order to make these gods and to make these idols. Therefore, these gods and even these entire religions become dependent on the created world to even exist, let alone be worshipped. Again, we find ourselves with a god that has to be made and has to have something there to make it. But again, this is not so for the one true God. While these gods need the earth, need the wood, need the stone, need the metal to exist, God causes the world to exist. Psalm 94 says it this way. He says, in his hand are the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his and all and and for it was made by it, by him and his hands formed the dry land. Yahweh God even goes on to make it abundantly clear that he does not need anything from man. Psalm 50 verse 12 says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world is mine and all that it contains. 
The God of the Bible, Yahweh God, does not need to be worshipped through stone or metal or wood. It doesn't need something that he created to be used to worship him. On the contrary, he does not need any of it because he made all of it. Probably the one most interesting thing that God says about creation is that it actually worships him all on his own. See, these people, they had to take the wood and they had to turn it into an idol so that they could worship and make it an object of worship and, and have an act of worship. They had to take the metal and, and, and fashion it into a, a, a god and, and put it on there and make its jewelry and make it shiny and, and do all of that stuff. But what God says is this, Psalm 19 says, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Creation is already worshiping God. No assembly required because he is the one who made it and all of creation knows its creator. Yahweh, the one true God, the God of the Bible, places things in their proper order. The created world is dependent on him, not the other way around. This leads us to the scary reality of idolatry that we see not only in the world around us, but also in our own hearts. And that's this, that often our objects of worship are actually making us spiritually blind. We pursue different idolatries, and this could be us here today. This could be um, those that I observed as I was traveling, and, and, and we wonder, don't you see what you're doing? Don't you see the harm in your behavior? Don't you see that this is, this is taking you in a place that you don't want to go? These people that do it, they are hoping that because they worship this idol, because they worship this stone or this gold or this, or this block of wood, that, that they will be able to see the spiritual world and understand the world around them better. But the reality is, is it only makes them more blind. God, through the prophet Isaiah, actually begins to mock even the blindness of the carpenter. He tells him, he says, you cut down a piece of wood and you bring it to your shop. Almost immediately, he takes that piece of wood and, and he takes that tree and he chops it into two pieces. The first piece he takes out back and he takes to his chopping block and he begins to, with his axe or saw or whatever he has at his disposal, begins to split the wood and make it ready for, for firewood. I would wager at this time, much like today, we consider firewood probably the most common and mundane use of wood imaginable. If you have a fireplace, you probably have a stack of firewood somewhere in your house. You might even spend time chopping firewood to make sure that that wood stove is, is going to have enough for winter. You don't think about that wood. And while it is certainly valuable when the snow comes... Nobody out here is guarding their wood pile with a shotgun for fear that someone will steal it, right? Because it's just, it's just there. It doesn't have value necessarily apart from when you need it and its purpose. It's doing what it was most common thing imaginable. It's not, a, it's not pretty. It doesn't look necessarily good because that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to what? Get burned. To be used and consumed until it doesn't exist anymore. That firewood is then ultimately used to bake bread, to roast meat, to warm the carpenter, and to use as light as he does his work. 
These are all acts that he performs regularly, even daily as a part of his life. They are not special, but common. And odds are he does not even think about what it is. This is just the wood that he has. And he uses it for its purpose. But then he takes the other half of the wood. Same tree, same trunk, same piece of wood ultimately. And he takes that piece of wood and he takes it to his shop. And he begins to to measure out the likeness of a man. And he begins to to carve away and, and take out chunks and using both saw and chisel, sandpaper and who knows what else. He begins to take this chunk of wood and begins to form it into something that looks like something else. And as we look through Scripture, we see that idolatry was used in a lot of ways in in Scripture to to look like birds and to look like animals that crawl across the ground and to look like all sorts of things. But in this particular example, he says, you made it to look like a man. Now, again, there's some comedy here. We have a man making an idol to worship that looks like him. I don't think that's an accident. I especially don't think that's an accident in our culture today. It shouldn't be surprising to us that ultimately, even today, we find ways of worshiping ourselves. And it says that the carpenter takes it and he fashions it into a man to look like the beauty of man. And then what does he do with this block of wood? He falls down and he worships it. He leaves it offerings and lights candles. He burns incense and he begs it to intervene in his daily life to protect him and to keep him safe. While a piece of the same wood is burning by the fi- in the fire behind him. As the sizzle of a roast is being smelled, he falls down and he, bur- and he worships the other chunk. Jesus responds to the behavior by saying it was the same block of wood. It was the same thing. It was the, the, the foolishness is, is there to him. The, the, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah and he's revealing that the emperor indeed has no clothes. And that this man who is using one chunk of wood to warm himself and to dry his clothes, he is also falling down before that same chunk of wood in hopes that somehow this chunk of wood will deliver him from his enemies. What utter nonsense. But here's what I want you to understand. The carpenter doesn't see it. The carpenter doesn't make that connection because the carpenter can't see it. Look again at verse 18. It says this. It says, They do not know, nor do they understand. For he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. See, idols cause the people who worship them to become spiritually blind. And this is what makes it so dangerous for us today as we begin this cycle of idolatry. Even here, even us, even in the United States of America right now, we begin to let idols sneak into our heart. And when our idols sneak into our hearts, they begin to blind us from the sin and the false beliefs and the fact that we are pursuing things that are not Christ. And it's a dangerous thing. And it is just as dangerous for you in this room right now as it is for that poor woman halfway across the globe. 
We have to remember this. That it is just as easy for us to build an idol in our hearts and our minds as it is for her to go and lay that candy down. Now make no mistake, our idols look different. Hers had a name and a place and a throne. It had pictures and, and all the things and all the trappings of idolatry that we think of. But our idolatry can often be much more subtle and much more tricky. Because our idolatry can sometimes come, come in terms like safety and security. Our idolatry can start taking on names like Democrat or Republican. Our idol, idols can start taking on names like Chevy or Ford or Dodge. Coach purses. Large bank accounts. 401ks. Apple stock. A Tesla car, the good life. And we pursue them and we worship them. And we come, become spiritually blind to the things that actually matter. Make no mistake, my brothers and sisters, we have idols too. And there are people today who we go to work with, who we see on our sports teams, who are part of the PTA, who are part of whatever group you are friends with, even the people you graduated high school with. And they may not have a statue or an altar in their house, but they don't know the Lord. And you can rest assured they are worshiping something. And it might be their children or it might be a false god of their own creation. But they are spiritually blind. And they are desperately needing someone to show them the truth. People often ask me or say to me, really, why do you go halfway around the world to tell people about Jesus when there are people that need to hear about Jesus right here. And their statement is true. There are people right here, in this room maybe, certainly in this town, who need to hear about Jesus. And that's why you're here. You're not here to make a lot of money. You're not here to retire comfortably. You're not here to get your children into the best college or on the best sports team. You're not here to have all the fun things that you always wished you had and to get those fun things for your children. You're here to give glory to God and to call other people into the worship of God. And that needs to be done here. But it needs to be done everywhere. And so some of us will go. And some of us will stay. But all of us are surrounded by people who have built idols in their hearts, if not idols in the marketplace. And they are desperately in need of someone to shine light in their spiritual darkness.
Will that be you? Because we don't know if anyone else is coming. We don't know if anybody else will get on a plane and fly to Porto Alegre and share Jesus with people. We don't know if anybody else is just going to raise their head up from their desk and tell the person in the cubicle right next to them, hey, can I share with you what happened this weekend? And tell them about Jesus. Maybe God's put you where you are right now because there is someone in your life who is worshiping the spiritual equivalent to a block of wood. And they desperately need to hear the gospel from your mouth. Now we often show you how to share the gospel. I'm missing my screens. Hopefully one day soon we will have those up. But we have taught you over the last two years how to share Christ with someone. And I'm going to go through that right now. So if you're with us today and you're thinking like, well, I kind of feel like I'm in that position. And I've made things a priority in my life that shouldn't be a priority in my life. And I am kind of worshiping things about this life that aren't really that important. Let me tell you what is important. The Bible says that God created all things. We've talked about that a lot today. And not only did he create those things, but he gave a purpose and a meaning for those things. And that includes you. You were made on purpose with a purpose before you ever breathed air into your lungs. God knew you and knew who you would be. And he had a purpose and a design for your life. But here's the problem is none of us actually do that purpose and design. We all want to create our own purpose. We all want to create our own design. We all want to do our own thing. And when we do our own thing and we take, we depart from what God wants us to do and we go to do our own thing, that always leads us to the same spot and that's a place called brokenness. If I try to use an iPad as a Frisbee on the golf Frisbee course, I'm going to have a broken iPad. Lost broken iPad because I know how well I would throw one of those Frisbees. And that's what happens with us when we do our own thing. We find ourselves in a place of brokenness and guys... We feel that brokenness. And guess what? If there's someone that God's laid on your heart, maybe you've heard this a million times, there's probably someone that's God laid on your heart to share this good news of the gospel. Guess what? They felt that brokenness too. All of us have moments in our lives where we feel like we're wrong. Something's not right. We're not doing what we should say. We're not doing what we should. We're not saying what we should say. We're not doing what we should do. We're not living the way that we're supposed to be living. That something in us and around us is a muck. And that's, then that's brokenness. And, and we try to do all these things to fix our brokenness, right? We, we, we work harder. We make more money. We, we change our financial decisions. We go and, and we go on vacations to de-stress. We go see a counselor to, to help them kind of package all of our, our trauma into nice, neat boxes sometimes. Not that counseling is bad. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we're trying to find ways to fix our brokenness. Sometimes we just turn to things like drugs and alcohol and, and television and, and, and binge-watching stuff on Netflix. It just hopes that it will just numb our brokenness. But we also know that no matter how long a vacation we take, the moment we step back, into our world and into our, our family that those problems are still there, that the brokenness is still broken and that we didn't fix a thing. And so for in order for us to see our brokenness become healed and fixed, God had to step into the situation. 
And the Bible says that God sent his one and only son, that he would live a perfect life, that he would die on the cross for our sins, and that he would take the punishment for our brokenness and our sin. And in doing so, that he would deliver us from our brokenness. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is not that you can fix your brokenness. The gospel is that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to fix it for you. And Jesus did that by dying on the cross, but also raising from the grave three days later. And the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And what that means for you and what that means for me is that if we will turn away from our sin, repent of our sin and turn to God and turn to Jesus and say, I'm going to follow you now. I'm not going to follow my own purpose and my own design. I'm not going to follow the things that got me to brokenness and to begin with. I'm going to start following you and put my trust in you and put my faith in you. And I'm going to make you the Lord of my life. Turn from my sin and confess you as the Lord of my life. It says when we do that, that Christ steps in, that we are saved and that we are sealed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, and only then, can we begin to recover and pursue God's design for our life. If you are with us today, and you can feel the idol in your heart, and you know that you are living for something that is not God, and you are ready to cast down that idol and place your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, we pray that you do that right now. For some of you, that may be today for the very first time and crying out in saving faith in Jesus. We want to invite you to do that. As we close out our service today, Joe is going to come up and he's going to sing a song and I'm going to stand right there. And if you are ready to give your life to Christ and you'd like to talk to somebody about that before you do it, I'm going to stand right there. If you're with us today and you recognize that even though you are a follower of Christ, you've started giving something or someone else that throne and that place of honor in your life and, and you're done with it and you're tired of it, we got all these steps here. And you are more than welcome to come up here and hand those things off to God. But guess what? God doesn't need these steps. God doesn't need this table. God doesn't need my bald self. God doesn't need Joe to sing a song. You can do it right there in your seat right now. And you can go to the Lord and you can hand those things over to him. That's how big he is. And that's how great he is. And the Bible says that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I challenge you today, don't walk out that door with the same idol in your heart and the same sin in your life. Let's pray. Our gracious God and King, Lord, we thank you so much for your word today. God, we praise you for just the eye-opening experiences that, that sometimes we have and sometimes we need. Lord, we praise you because you don't pull punches and that you will flat out tell us that, that we are worshiping things that amount to nothing that we will place our hope in things that will be here today and be gone tomorrow. God, so often we unknowingly worship a block of wood. We fall down before a pile of rocks and we put our trust in things that you made, that you caused to come into existence and we forget to worship you. 
Father God, I pray that if we are here today and, and we know you as Lord and Savior, but we have, have built up an idol in our hearts and in our minds and, and we have stopped worshiping you the way that you deserve, Lord, I pray that we will cast down those idols and that you, we will give you our whole hearts. God, I also pray that if there's anyone here today who has been hoping and trusting in their own works in their own righteousness and in their own things, Lord, that they would see that they are still just worshiping an idol and only it's an idol of self. They've built up an idol that looks just like them so that they can worship themselves. And Lord, I pray that they would cast down that idol, that they would take their hope, place their hope and trust in you and you alone, that they would put all of their hope in the saving worth of Jesus Christ, that they would make him the Lord of their lives and that they would turn away from their own sin and their own spiritual blindness. Lord, I pray that they would pray that they are a sinner, that they have fallen short of your glory and that they need saving. I, would pr I pray that they would pray that they have placed their hope and trust in Jesus Christ, that they believe that he is your son, that he died on the cross for their sins, and that they rose from the grave three days later, that he did, and that they are turning away from their sin and making Jesus the Lord of their life. Well, I pray that that is the prayer of some today. Lord, we all pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.